0: we 've been making our way through second kings and it's uh, it 's been uh, it 's been very difficult to see just the best that man can do and first uh, and second kings is as much like judges just they, they try to govern themselves and they go through this experiment of. Trusting in God and then uh, not trusting God, and whenever we don't trust God and we go our own way, it, it is a complete disaster. And First and Second Kings is just um, uh, shows exactly that, just as it did in Judges. And um, but God loves His people, and He's very gracious, very gracious. And I'm so glad that I'm not God because. Um, sometimes my temperament, my, my attitude is not really a reflection of God's attitude and His heart. And that's why we need to be filled constantly every single day just to be led by His Spirit and, and just allowing Him to live the life of Christ through us, to live through us. And if I can do that, then I will love my fellow man, regardless of what they do to me. I mean, we don't have to be best friends with people, but we can, we can love them and uh, treat them with respect, and, and that includes everybody, right? And that's what we've been called to do. You know, we don't need to start fights and create problems. Uh, problems will find us. We don't need to create them. But how we deal with them is very important. And so... Uh, We'll see that in in the lives of of these kings too. Uh, A lot of times trouble comes to them. Many times they actually are the cause of the trouble. But tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 15 and we're going to see in this chapter tonight seven different kings, the reigns of seven different kings. And the first one, uh, or actually the first two are in Judah, um, Azariah or Uzziah. And um, those two names are synonymous, uh, Azariah or Uzziah, and then Jotham. And those are the only two kings that are covered tonight. But then there's these other five kings of Israel, Zechariah, Shalom, uh, Menahem, uh, Pekahiah, and Pekah, or Pekah, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. And there's a lot more in, in the general uh, time frame as these other two. And because those kings of Israel that I just read to you, their reigns lasted very short. And it's remarkable uh, to me the instability, uh, again, of the northern kingdom due to their continued idolatry. And this ought not to be a shock to us because of what Romans 6.23 tells us. And what does Romans 6.23 tell us? So this is one of those verses that you want to... Uh, put to memory for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our lord that 's a great memory verse to remember it 's short and it 's uh, very clear, and their sin, speaking of Israel and Judah for that matter, their sin continued uh, to breed hate, uh, intrigue, and conspiracy resulting. And what I believe uh, is in much shorter reigns, uh, especially exemplified in the kings of Israel. Because as I said, we're going to be looking at two of them from Judah, but five of them from Israel. These guys over here in Israel, their reigns were very short. And, and it's no surprise because they're, they're, they were just so farther along on the trail of death, if you will, than Judah was. But Judah was catching up. Judah was learning from her sister to the north. And even though Israel would be led captive first by the Assyrians, it would only be 116 years later that Nebuchadnezzar would come with the Babylonian army and lay siege to Jerusalem, and ultimately take them captive into Babylon. But it's this, um, and we're also going to see in verses 19, if you look uh, in the chapter that we're going to look at, we're going to read the first 12 verses in just a moment, but Look at verses 19 and verses 29. You might just want to circle them um, before we get started because we're going to see also in these chapters, or these verses, specifically in verse 19 and verse 29, we're going to see Assyria making advances um, uh, into the kingdom of of Israel, the northern ten tribes. And it's going to be sort of like the writing on the wall for them. Because uh, they're advancing and, and they're starting to make inroads. And they're, you can almost tell that it's almost like a, a dog being able to sniff uh, ground meat somewhere. And, you know, the meat is sitting there and the dog is a ways away and he starts to sniff and he starts to get a little closer and then he's, he's thinking about it and he comes and he grabs a piece and he runs off and then he's back for a while and then he comes back again and it's sort of like that because the enemies of God are seeing just the dilapidated state and they are going to take advantage, and God is going to allow it, and he's going to allow Assyria, and even Syria, so there's Syria, and then there's Assyria, both of these nations are going to come against Israel, and uh, eventually against Judah as well, and why does God allow that? Does he delight in the death of his people? Well, of course not. The scripture tells us that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, and he certainly, and they were wicked, but he's He's compassionate, but he's going to allow it because he's going to chasten them. And whenever you see this word chasten in the Bible, it always has this idea of instruction embedded with it. So when you are chastened by the Lord, yes, it can hurt and there can be circumstances where your life gets a little edgy, but God is doing it and he's doing it to instruct you, not just to pound you. See, our fathers, when we were younger, they they would punish us. And because they're angry, they might go over the edge a little bit. They might discipline us a little too long or a little too harshly out of their anger. But God, His anger is perfect. And He knows exactly what to do and how to do it. And it's always in measure according to His purpose and plan. So there's always, with everything that God allows, and we'll see that in the lives of Judah and Israel, that he will, it's in, it's in measure, but it's always with the intention of drawing them back. He's never just going to punish them and say, I'm done with you forever. It's never that way. There was always this idea of, I'm doing this now because of this, but I want to give you hope. I want to tell you what I'm going to do afterwards. And God always gives that hope. And that's important to remember. And he does that with us too. So don't get discouraged when you're chastened of the Lord. He's not there to punish you. Just to punish you it's there for instruction and his desire his aim is always to draw you back to himself never forget that because the enemy and your own feelings will say god hates me because i've done this thing and now i've got these consequences i got to deal with he just wants to crush me into pieces and be done with me and the devil's going yeah that's exactly right and your feelings are going yeah that's right and god's going what are you listening to the devil in your flesh That's why it's important, folks, to know the Word of God, to know His character. As we go through the Scriptures, you're going to see the character of God in action. And He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. The God of the Old Testament is the same God that's in the New Testament. He's a God of mercy in the Old. He's a God of mercy and grace in the New as well. No difference between Him. Okay? And so... We see in verses 19 and 29, uh, Assyria making advances, and this would be, like I said, the writing of the, on the wall for them. And it won't be long, and the Assyrians will finally come and take the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, captive. And, and they'll do that in 722 B.C. So the northern kingdom's about ready to fall, literally just a couple chapters away from the whole thing just falling um, And and them being led into captivity. So let's just read down to the first 12 verses, and then we'll come back to um, verse 1. It's a pretty lengthy chapter, and a lot of it is um, uh, we're going through a lot of kings very quickly, okay? And there's not a great deal known about some of these, and we'll pause on a few of them to look at some few things. But notice in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, In the 27th year of Jeroboam... Now, this is Jeroboam 2, that uh, Amaziah had uh, named his son uh, Jeroboam. But this is Jeroboam 2. The first Jeroboam was a few hundred years prior to this, and so not the same guy. But in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah... King of Judah, he became king, and he was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Wow. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed, the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, and then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper till the day of his death. And so he dwelt in an isolated house, and Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people of the land, while his father, of course, was in this isolated house because of his leprosy. And it says, that verse 6, Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. And let's just, um, actually, let's go down through 8 through 12 here. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. And then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the Acts of Zechariah, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And put a little star next to verse 12. This was the word of the Lord which he spoke to Yehu, saying, Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. So, pretty interesting things. And again, uh, nothing too remarkable uh, about these kings. Let's go back to verse 1 here and we'll get started. <clears throat> Excuse me. Notice in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel. Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. And you know, as as we go through kings, you've probably picked this up already, that you'll see, and, and it's the only way it can be done, I guess, as it's speaking of different kings, it speaks that in the 27th year of this king, this king came into, you know, started his reign, and then he goes along, and then this one dies, and then this one starts. And so there's this constant, you know, a uh, juxtaposition of when kings start and when they end and, and, and overlapping and all that. It can get a little crazy. And for that reason, um, I put these three sheets on the back counter for you. And I gave these out a number of weeks ago when we first started kings. But I added one into this that I thought was really helpful. And I would encourage you to pick up these three. And as you go through, and, and the dates pretty much align, uh, they agree with one another because they, they rely upon one another, and you, will, you may see a, a date one year different on one sheet versus the other, but that's really no big deal. It's just a question of how you start this whole thing. So they're, they're not inaccurate at all. In fact, these are probably the best dating systems you'll find anywhere, and most everyone uses these, and they're right on. They're really good. And so I would encourage you on that back shelf just to grab one of each. And as you read through it, it'll help you a lot. It's really helped me a lot. I've actually got these pasted up in my office um, on the side of a wall so I can see them. And I'm always looking up at them and trying to get my bearings of what happened when and how. So it's really encouraging to me. But let's look at Azariah. Now, this uh, Azariah, he is also called Uzziah, So you've heard of Uzziah because um, we read about him here in uh, 2 Kings 15, and we're also going to read about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. So maybe somewhere in the top of the chapter here, write 2 Chronicles 26, because that's the other part of the scripture that gives more information about uh, filling in some of the blanks, what we're going to be talking about tonight. And you'll also recall that Isaiah spoke of Uzziah. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the, the Lord high and lifted up and the train filled, his train filled the temple. This is the Uzziah that he is referring to because Uzziah and uh, Isaiah the prophet were contemporaries of one another. So Isaiah 6 and 7, you're going to see him spoken of there and also in the opening verses of Hosea and Amos who are both uh, pre-exilic prophets. Does everybody understand what pre-exilic means? It means before they went into exile. So Israel, at this point, hasn't gone into exile. They're right on the edge. We're going to see in the next two chapters, they're going to go into exile. So these prophets have been prophesying, and so they call them pre-exilic prophets, meaning they prophesied before either uh, Israel or Judah had gone into exile. And they're always warning them to turn away from their sin because if they don't, God is going to take them into exile. The point being is that if God sends a prophet and, and tries to uh, tell them what they're doing wrong and then encourages them to repent of their sin, and they do, then God can stop this army that's coming for them. right? Because God can control that, can he? And so that's what a pre-exilic prophet is. And then there are other prophets who are exilic prophets, those who prophesy during the exile. People, uh, folks like um, uh, Daniel and Jeremiah, those are good examples of uh, exilic prophets. And there's other post-exilic prophets like Zechariah and, um, and, and Malachi, I believe. And so, Azariah, or Uzziah, he was co-regent with his father, meaning while his father was uh, waning in his reign, uh, Amaziah, um, excuse me, these names are so close that if you're not careful, you can mix them up. So Azariah was co-regent with his father, Amaziah, for the last 25 years of Amaziah's reign, which was 792 to 767 for those who are interested in those kinds of dates. And then Jehoash, according to 2 Kings 14, verses 13 and 14, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he took him hostage for a season in Samaria until Jehoash died, and then uh, Amaziah was let go. But Azariah, this king that we're speaking of now, he reigned for a total of 52 years, from 792 to 740 B.C., the second longest reigning king in Israel, or Judah. The only one who reigned longer was Manasseh for 55 years. So a very long time. So verse 2, it says, He, speaking of Azariah, was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done except the high places were not removed and the people sacrificed still and they burned incense on the high places. So just like his father Amaziah, Azariah started off well. He started off well but he didn't finish well. And it's important to not only start off well but to finish well. Right? Don't you want to finish well? I don't want to start my Christian life and do everything really well and draw close to God. And then in my latter years of, of my walk with him, I, I just kind of walk away. And I you know, I've still got my salvation, but you know, we can get lazy and we can do stupid things. And I don't want to be that person who gets careless because we have to be watchful all the time. We can't take a vacation from our, our relationship with Christ. And if you're really loving him and allowing him to love you, it's not really a chore. It's not really a, a difficult thing to do. It's really just like breathing. It's just walking. and It really ought not to be a big thing, but we do have to be watchful. And if you're loving him, you're going to be watchful. Because you know the, the things that are out there that are going to trip you up. You know the devil's devices. You know what he's trying to do. But notice that Azariah only went so far in ridding Judah from its idolatrous practices and habits. He didn't remove the high places and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on them. But the people of Judah, the people of Israel actually, they were to worship in one place, weren't they? They were to worship in one place. God had told them that they were to worship in one place right in the margin of this verse, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, and I'm going to read it to you. Because this whole idea of, you'll see it over and over again as these kings come and go, as they're introduced, you'll see very similar refrains that God uses. And this is one of them. He did like he was fine. He started off well, just like his dad, but the high places were still there, and the people continued to burn incense. And so they, they, they were doing well, but they didn't go the full distance. But in Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, this is what God had told Israel before they came into the promised land. Remember, they were on the eastern side of the Jordan after being uh, coming out of Egypt, spending 40 years in the desert. They're just getting ready to come into the promised land And God sets them down and says, Okay, I got some things I need to tell you. And here's the first one, or here's one of them. He says, But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be a place where the Lord God no, excuse me, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you. Notice your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, and all the choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see. And so he's saying, there's going to be a very specific place that I want you to do this. And of course, God would choose Jerusalem. He would choose Jerusalem. But unfortunately, these kings of Israel never went the distance. You know, there's nothing worse than only going so far and never finishing. You know, it's like eating an apple pie. If you're going to eat the apple pie, then eat the apple pie for heaven's sakes. Don't eat like half of it and then leave the other half. Uh, Men, eat the whole thing, right? You don't stop, you eat the whole thing. So if you're going to start it, finish it, (laughs) right? And so, but these kings, they didn't go the distance. God told them to rid their enemies, they didn't do that, and it caused them trouble. And then he tells them to rid these high places that the pagans used to worship and sacrifice up on these places, and they would still use those places up there. They might claim that they were worshiping Yahweh, and that's all fine and good, but God says, no, you've got to bring it down here, because here in Jerusalem is where I ought to be worshiped. And don't you think God has the right to say, this is where I want to be worshiped, and this is how I want to be worshiped? It's not up to us. We can't just make it up as we go, right? Because he's holy. And what he says goes. I don't know, does that, does that register with anybody? I mean, some Christians, they read the Bible as if it's like just a, um, um, a suggestion. But it's not a suggestion. They're commandments. And why? Is God just wanting to ruin our fun? No, he, he loves you. But he knows what we're made of. He knows that we're flesh. He knows that we are dust. He knows our propensity. He knows the enemy very well. And he knows what the enemy wants to do to you. And he knows what your flesh is capable of. And so he's going to tell you to be careful. And he's going to give you things to stay away from. But just like that little kid who, when he's told no, he gets right to the edge of whatever it is. And you've seen, you've heard this analogy before. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to get to the edge and tempt God. That's what tempting God is. God, I know you say it's, it's good that we don't sleep together as, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend. Well, he's just living with me. It's okay. We're not doing anything. And God's going, okay, you're, you're, you're tempting me. I know your flesh, and I know what you're capable of doing. And you're saying to yourself, no, it's okay. We've got it under control. Okay. Are you sure about that? Oh, yeah. And then next thing you know, It happens. And it happens again. And then you realize God's word was right all along. Flee fornication. Don't give any chance for the flesh. It will always, always be wanting more and more. It's never, ever satisfied. And so sin, you know, unfortunately, these kings... uh, They never went the distance, and it's going to cost them everything. And we're going to see that very shortly in the next couple of weeks because sin and death are not interested in you just playing with it. In other words, having one toe in in the kingdom and one toe out of the kingdom, doing whatever it is you want, but sin is like a fire. And once you've allowed a cinder to touch you, it's not content until it has consumed you and taken all of you, and that's the way sin works. We don't have the ability, and we think we do, that we can go only so far, and then we can stop. Well, see, that's what drug addicts think. They think that sniffing glue is fine. It's all I gotta do. I'm not gonna go any further, and then pretty soon, that's not good enough. Then they go to smoking marijuana. Pretty soon, that's not very good, you know, and then they want something a little bit more. Then Then they're taking, you know, crack cocaine, and then that's not good enough, and then heroin, and then finally fentanyl, and the list goes on, and then they end up in a morgue. They thought all along, well, I can pull back anytime I want, but that's not the way it is. That is why it's so important to not give an inch to sin. Don't give it an inch, because if you do, it will take a mile, and then it will take two miles, and then it'll take 10 miles, and ultimately it will destroy you. Proverbs 27, verse 20 says this. It's an interesting, it, this, this verse popped in my head as I was reading it this, this week, and it says, hell and destruction are never full. In other words, it's never satisfied. It's never satiated. It always wants more. Hell and destruction are never satisfied. They always, it always wants to gather more. So the eyes of men, or man are never satisfied. And the words full and satisfied are the same Hebrew word. It means it's never satiated. It, it always wants more. And that's our nature. And these kings were doing the same thing. And it's a real warning to us. And I know that these verses, these chapters, aren't really exciting because it, it, it's really putting our, putting our humanity under the microscope. And it's not really encouraging. But I'm encouraged by the grace of God. I'm encouraged as long-suffering as patience. Because he's patient with these people And he's patient with you, too. But we never want to get to the point where we just take that patience for granted. Because if we do, then we abuse grace. And then we we take it for granted. And we should never take grace for granted. Romans 13, verse 12 says this. And it's a good exhortation for us and also for these kings, had they known it. Paul said to the Romans, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light and let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on, notice, on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And then verse five, then the Lord struck the king, Azariah. That's who he's talking about. So that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. This is what they call being a co-regent. So while the king is in this isolated house, his son Jotham is really um, co-reigning with him. And so the reigns can overlap. And you'll see that in those uh, files that I've got printed out for you. But uh, notice, uh, notice that the Lord did this. He struck Azariah. And we don't like the thought of God himself afflicting us, but he does at times, and he, makes his, he has his reasons for doing so. And I started off the service by saying this, but let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11. This is one that we know very well. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens... And he scourges every son whom he receives. Again, it's about instruction to draw him back, not to just beat him for no reason. He says in verse 7, If you endure chastening, then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So if you're getting busted... Praise God, that means he cares about you. I get nervous when I'm doing something wrong and there's silence. And I'm thinking, God's given me a lot of rope to hang myself. A short drop or a long drop and a sudden stop, right? I don't want that. Every, I want him to convict my heart every moment when I'm going astray. I don't want that wiggle room. I don't want that gray. I don't want that lengthy rope. I want that short rope. Keep me like a, like a dog. You know, see those people walking along the road? And they got their pit bull on a very... The guy's got the thing wrapped up and the dog is like right next to him because he knows that that little poodle across the street is a snack. And if he doesn't hold that dog close to him, the dog's gonna go and he's gonna inhale that little poodle. Right? And so I wanna be like that master who has the dog close. Lord, keep me that close. Right? Because I don't like poodle. (laughs) Don't mind the dog. I just don't wanna eat poodle. So... He goes on and he says, For they indeed... um, Furthermore, we've had human fathers who have corrected us, and we've paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, God, for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. See, there's the difference. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that is the difference between a father, and the, a, of, a, a father of ours and, and the world and in the flesh versus our heavenly father. And here is the reason, and you won't find this in this chapter, chapter 15 of 2 Second, Second Kings, you won't find the reason that God struck Azariah. But in 2 Chronicles, we do. In 2 Chronicles 26, verse 15, it says this, And he, Azariah, made devices in Jerusalem, invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. But here it is. So his fame spread far and wide for he was marvelously helped by the Lord till, or marvelously helped till he became strong. So here we get a glimpse of why God struck him because God was helping him and making him famous, but then it went to his head. And it's very easy for that to happen. Uzziah became strong and powerful and very famous. His army became large. He invented instruments of war for the towers and the Temple Mount, but he was lifted up in pride. What does Proverbs tell us? This is one we know very well. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And what does Proverbs 6 tell us, beginning in verse 16? These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And he lists them, but the first one is a proud look. A proud look. God hates pride, and that's exactly what Azariah or Uzziah, that's what his fault was. And it gets even worse than this, because that alone is enough for God to respond to him. But again, 2 Kings 15 here doesn't give us the full reason, but in 2 Chronicles 26, it gives us an even greater reason why God struck him and how he did it and why he did it. 2 Chronicles 26, beginning in verse 16. Let me read it to you. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, who is the only person that's allowed to go into the temple and offer sacrifices or incense? What tribe is it that's only allowed to do that? Levi, and specifically Aaron's sons of Levi. There is no king of Judah who is supposed to go in and take that role upon himself. And so, There is where he's, and then in verse 17 it says, So Azariah, um, the priest, went after him. And with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord your God. And think about this. These guys respected this man, but he went in and did something that he was not supposed to do ever. He deserved death for this. But he was so lifted up in his pride. Hey, I'm really hot stuff. I got everything happening for me. And you know what? The flesh is never satisfied. It wants to do what the holy men are doing. It's not, it's not content on just, you know, being a military man and making all these exploits. No, they want a piece of the priesthood too. Because they see the reverence that the people had of the priests. They're like, I want that too. I want that too. I want to be revered in this way and that way. And I want to be, it's all about me. And then the, you can just, the flesh. is. Just, it's like a horrible, ugly thing. And, that's, and then the priests are like, you better get out of here right now. And they were furious. And they brought 80 men with him. They were going to carry this man, the king, out of there if necessary. And notice what happened. Verse 19, then Uzziah became furious. And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. And there on his forehead, he was leprous. And so they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. I mean, think about that. It happened quickly. In an instant, it just broke out all over him. And he's freaking out. The priest going, I don't even want to touch this guy, let's get the cattle prod or something and, or you know lasso him or something and, and Uzziah sees this happening and he's realizing his error, he wants to get out of there too because he knows that God had struck him yes, God struck him, it tells us that, God did it we don't like to hear that do we, that God struck someone but only the priests in Numbers 3 verse 10 it tells us that So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall attend to their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death, no one but Aaron and his sons. And the only king of Judah that was justified in serving as king, priest, and prophet was Jesus. And I would encourage you to make a little note off the side of your Bible, Hebrews chapter 7, because it talks about Jesus being our high priest and offering himself as a high priest would do. He was not only a king, he was not only a prophet, but he was also a priest. He was the only one who fulfilled those things, but no other king. But Jeroboam, you remember the very first Jeroboam? He did the same thing, remember, in 1 Kings chapter 13? There was a moment where Jeroboam, um, the first king in Israel, he played the role as priest as well and was rebuked by a man of God from Judah who had approached him. And Jeroboam, if you remember, he created those two altars, one in Bethel and then one up north in Dan, those golden calves that they had on the altar. And the man of God from Judah came and says, it is not right for you to offer uh, burnt offerings and incense and all these things on those altars. And Jeroboam reached out his hand and pointed at him and says, "Kill this man! Take this man away!" And as he did so, he couldn't pull his arm back. <laughs> there's a problem here. God just froze his ligaments, and now he's walking around like this. He make a great pointer setter, you know. He just he's, his hand is always going like that. Tell us where to go, Jeroboam, right over there, you know. So, and he has God, uh, you know. He has the man of God pray for him, and God is gracious and heals Jeroboam, this idolatrous man who never recovered. Can you see the grace of God in that, too? I like to point out great the grace of God in every area of the Scripture because it's so important to see the grace of God. If I was God, I'd say, you're going to look awfully funny trying to put your clothes on in the morning. You know, your arm is out like that and you can't bring it in. I'm going to let you stay like that for a couple years just because it looks funny. See, I would do that, but God's like, I think I got the point across. Who's in control here? (laughs) Who's in power here? And of course, it is Almighty God. At the end of verse 5, it says that, back in our text now, it says that Jotham, the king's son now... um, you know, after his dad was struck and he was put in an isolated house, they, because they, they isolated these people because leprosy was, they didn't know a lot about it. It was probably pretty contagious. So they wanted to isolate them. So his son Jotham is going to be like a king, a regent alongside of him, uh, attending to those things while his dad is, is, is put away in the isolation house. Verse 6, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Well, yes, they are. We just read it, didn't we? We just read it. 2 Chronicles 26. We read some passages. We just read it. So yes, it is. So verse 7, so Azariah or Uzziah. He rested with his fathers, meaning he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Now, again, this is another uh, small point, but it's worth looking at. In Second Chronicles 26, toward the end, in verse 22, there's a little bit more information about his death and how his death, uh, where he was buried and how it came about. It says in Second Chronicles 26 verse 22 it says now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos wrote so Uzziah rested with his fathers and notice they buried him with his fathers in the field of burial which belonged to the kings so he wasn't even buried in the same place with all of his forefathers there was a different place and they did this because he was a leper and that's what they said he is a leper he's not going to be buried with The king's in honor. He's going to be buried in a different place uh, in in the general area. And then it says that Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. And so it was during the reign of Azariah that Isaiah, who was a contemporary at that time, he began to prophesy and began to warn Judah and Jerusalem for her idolatry. And Israel, the northern ten tribes. Whenever I say Israel from now on, just understand that that's the northern ten, and then Judah or Jerusalem is always the lower two, okay, in the southern kingdom, because otherwise you might think it's you know all of all of Israel, but it's not. And so. Uh, The northern ten tribes, uh, they were about to uh, go into captivity by the Assyrians. And because Judah and Jerusalem, they weren't listening either. They weren't watching what was happening to their sister up there in the north. So God sent them a prophet to warn and exhort them. And God has always used prophets to warn his people before he brings judgment. Because if the people hear through the prophet and they repent, then judgment can be abated. But if they won't listen, then the hammer's going to fall. And see, God cares, doesn't he? You know, that's an area that people don't understand, is that God is a, a, because he's a God of love, he also has to be a God of vengeance. Because as God is a God of love, that means he hates everything that's opposed to his love. And that's rebellion, that's sin, he hates it. And just as awesome as his love is, so intensely is also his hatred for sin and rebellion. And see, you and I are in this wonderful place because the wrath of God has already been taken out on his son. We no longer have to be, uh, we will never see the wrath of God because he took that punishment out on his son in our place. And all we got to do is put our faith in him. That's a pretty sweet deal. Wouldn't you agree? In Isaiah chapter 1, notice what it says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And if you also look at Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah wrote... Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees this vision of the throne room of God, and God sends Isaiah to now warn Judah and Jerusalem. So the first five chapters of Isaiah are him warning Judah and Jerusalem. You guys are falling into the same stuff that the northern ten tribes did. They're about ready to get taken away to captivity, and you're doing the same thing. I'm warning you, Isaiah, go tell them. Are you willing? I'm here. I'm going to do it. And he goes. And those first five chapters is God just laying out his indictment against Israel and also encouraging them about future restoration. But they have to turn. And so finally, Isaiah gets his commission in chapter 6. And he's like, I'll go. And God says, you go, but they're not going to listen to you. They're going to see, but they're not going to really see. They're going to hear, but they're not gonna really going to listen, Isaiah. But you go, because they must be held accountable. And I want you to tell them the truth. Because they know that their northern neighbors are about ready to fall. And they are not too close behind if they're not careful. Go warn them. Go tell them. And that's what that's all about. That's what it's all about. So, verse 8, it says, In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. Now, verse 9, it, you're going to find is a very familiar refrain of the kings of Israel. You can almost copy and paste. I almost wonder you know, if, the, if the scribes had a, a copy and paste function in their word processor. You know, God would say, yeah, remember what happened in verse 9? Same thing with these guys. Just copy and paste. You know, <laughs> They did evil in the sight of the Lord as their fathers had done. They didn't depart from the sin, just like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Same thing, same familiar chorus. And then notice verse 10. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Do we have that book in our Bible? The Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? We don't have it, do we? We don't. We have the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, that's First and Second Chronicles, but we don't have the other one. But this was the word of the Lord that he spoke to Yehu. Verse 12, I had you star this verse for a reason. So this was the word of the Lord which he spake to Yehu, saying, your son shall sit on your throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. Now, when did God say this to Yehu? Now, remember this this king, Zechariah, he was, of the, he was the, a, a king of Israel. And he was also of the dynasty of Yehu. So when did God speak to Yehu and tell him this? You might even have it in the margin of your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 29-31. through 31. Let me read it to you. However, it says, Yehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. That is from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And then in verse 30 it says, And the Lord said to Yehu, Because you have done well in doing what was right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons, notice God is saying, because you, did, you didn't you did do everything right, and we find out that out later, and we already looked at that, you did some things right, and because of that, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to allow your sons, your grandson, your great-grandson, to sit on the throne. Until the fourth generation, that's what he says, and it comes to pass, and we're reading it right now. But notice, in verse thirty-one of of Second uh, Kings ten, there he says, "But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of God, the, law, the Lord God of Israel, with all of his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam." And that's a really sad commentary, isn't it? When we just won't, we won't listen. But this was the fulfillment, this verse that we looked at back in our text now, back in verse 12, when this was the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Yehu, saying, your son shall sit on the throne to the fourth generation, and so it was. Um, On the screen, I've got this this diagram, and and this is uh, an excerpt from one of these sheets that I have on the back counter there. But you can see on the left side, there is this uh, dynasty, uh, the fifth dynasty right here on the, on the left-hand side, and Yehu was the, the father of it. And then he, he had a son, Jehoiah has, and then Jehoash, and then Jeroboam too, and then finally Zechariah. And that was the very last, Zechariah was the very last one of the fifth dynasty. So dynasties, the way they work, just in case you don't know, because it's not something we really talk about, a dynasty, it goes from a son, or from a father to a son, and then his son, and then his son. And, and that's a dynasty. It, 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 it's, it, it's, the succession is from, Kit, from that line. But whenever that line is broken, and then somebody else comes in and usurps the throne, then the dynasty is broken, and then whoever that usurper is, he has a son, and if his son sits on the throne, then that sets up a new dynasty. Follow me? And so there were nine such dynasties in Israel, but in the kingdom of Judah, there was only one dynasty, because they were all succession Of David. One dynasty, but in Israel. So this was the fulfillment of what the Lord had said to Yehu. Zechariah would end Yehu's dynasty, which was the fifth dynasty, as you see on the screen. And that ended in 752 BC. And so, verse 13, it says Shalom, the son of Jabesh, now there's going to start a new dynasty in Israel. The son of Jabesh, we don't know who he is, just some guy became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. Wow, only one month. And Shalom's reign was the 6th dynasty, as we can see in the uh, next slide. and It's there, you can see it highlighted there. The 6th dynasty. And it would start and end with him and then in verse 14 it says for Menahem the son of Gadai, went up from Tirzah came to Samaria and struck Shalom the son of Jabesh in Samaria and killed him and reigned in his place and so his dynasty ends because he didn't have any kids to sit on the throne and so his reign was over his dynasty ended but this place called Tirzah is, uh, is a place right to the Uh, It's right in this area, like if you were looking at a map of Israel on the uh, west side of the Jordan, Tirzah used to be the capital of Israel back before it became Samaria. Uh, When Jeroboam started uh, his reign uh, from the very beginning, his home was in Tirzah. But then after that, and not long after that, the capital changed to Samaria, which is really due west of Tirzah. And so just to kind of give you an idea... Of where that was. And so now the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And then from Tirzah, Menahem attacked Tipsa, all who were there and its territory, because they did not surrender. Therefore, he attacked it, and all the women there or who were there with child he ripped open. So, a very brutal uh, man. And then in verse 17, it says, In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel, and he reigned 10 years in Samaria. And so he starts what we know as the 7th dynasty uh, in the northern kingdom. And his dynasty would last through Pekahiah, his son, And Menahem's reign uh, lasted from 752 to 742 BC, uh, a period of 10 years. Very short time in relationship to some of the kings of Judah. And then in verse 18, it goes on, and notice what it says. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, cut and paste. (laughs) He did not depart all of his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. And then in verse 19, I had you circle that earlier because here we're going to see just a little foreshadowing of what God is going to do. He's going to bring this king from Assyria and the writing is starting to be written on the wall. So Pul, king of Assyria, came against the land and Menahem gave Pul. A thousand talents of silver that his right or that his hand might be with him to strengthen and uh, the kingdom under his control. Now this pull, his name, uh, he's really this is Tiglath Pileser the third from Assyria, the king of Assyria. So this is just another name for him. Okay, so when you see pull. That's what it means, and so in verse twenty nine, remember I had you circle that verse too because it talks about Tiglath Pileser the third. He comes against Pekah, who was the eighth dynasty in Israel, and so the writing is on the wall. The, the 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 temperature is getting hotter. Israel's getting ready. It's very ripe to fall. And then in verse 20, and Menahem exacted the money from Israel and from all the very wealthy, from each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. Notice. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. So they paid him off is really what they did. And so now instead of the people giving money, they're having to give it involuntarily to keep their enemies pacified and away from them. Instead of using that money for their families and for the things of the temple or the things of God, now they're just using their money to pay off their enemies so that they go away and they don't destroy them. And that's what Menahem did. He exacted money from the people. Now the rest of the acts, verse 21, of Menahem and, and all that he did, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel? I guess they are, but we don't really know much about it. And that's okay. So Menahem rested with his fathers and then Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. In the 50th year, verse 23, of Azariah, king of Judah. And so... This Azariah from Judah, he's, he's, he's having this really long reign, and all the time he's having this long reign, there's all this turnover in the northern tribes. Just people only serving for a half a year, a half a year, ten years, two years, you know, and, and they're just getting... It's just a mess. It's just a mess. So in the 50th year, verse 23, of Azariah, or Uzziah, king of Judah... Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, became king over Israel in Samaria. He reigned two years. So he reigned from 742 to 740 B.C., only two years. And notice the familiar refrain. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. Copy and paste, copy and paste. And then Pekah, the son of Remaliah an officer of his, conspired against him and killed him in Samaria, in the citadel of the king's house, along with Argob and Ariai. And with him were fifty men of Gilead. He killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all that he did, indeed, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And so, verse 27, in the 52nd year, 52nd year of Azariah, king of uh, Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. So finally, the guy is there for a little bit, and uh, Pekah was the 8th dynasty in Israel, and he reigned from 752 to 732 BC, a total of 20 years. And notice verse 28, the familiar refrain of the chorus that we're singing tonight. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And verse 29, this is the one I had you um, circle as well. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, King of Assyria came and took Eljan, Abel, Beth, Maica, Genoa, K- Kadesh, Hadesor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. So now you got Tiglath Pileser. In the northern part of Israel, up around the Galilee region, and along the eastern side, uh, from your perspective, looking at me, you know, all of around the Galilee area, around the Sea of Galilee, and then over on this side, over on Gilead, he took them all captive. And at that point, you would think. You know, it'd be a pretty good, pretty good cause to turn back to God now, don't you think, when they see that these things are happening? If, if I were them, I'd say, you know what, God's got our attention, we're done here, uh, God forgive us, and they start bowing down to him and repenting in ashes and sackcloth. You'd think that they would do that, but they didn't. And the final blow was coming. We're going to read about it later, but the final blow is going to come because Later on, we're going to see Shalmaneser V, the fifth of Assyria in 722. He's going to besiege Samaria. He's going to go even further south from up where he took you know, uh, Tiglath-Pileser. He took all of this and then his successor you know, comes in, Shalmaneser V, and he's going to go further south and he's going to take the capital of Israel and he's going to besiege it for three years. He's going to surround it and try to starve them out and ultimately he succeeds in the siege, and they take the rest of the northern the, the people of, of the northern tribes, takes them captive, and, and then they're finished. They're finished. Verse 30. Then Hosea, the son of Elah, had a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck and killed him. So he reigned in his place in the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So this Hosea, which we're going to talk about later on. You can see him on the screen. That was the very ninth dynasty and final king of Israel before they are finally taken captive when Shalmaneser V comes in and leads them out. And they were brutal. They would lead them out by fish hooks. They would take and, and line them up and put hooks in their, in their mouth down through the bottom of their jaw and they would lead a chain of these people to uh, Assyria in that fashion. They were brutal, brutal the Assyrians. They had a reputation for being brutal. And God was chastening his people. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And finally we come to a pretty decent king. (laughs) In fact, Jotham, uh, there's some things written about him, but there's nothing really terribly bad about him. He's one of the better kings of, of Judah. Uh, we're going to see a really great king coming up in Judah right before the lights go out for Judah. God sends one bright light. And I love that about God. When things look like everything is just ready to fall. You know, he, he did this in uh, well with, with Israel, he just allowed their light to... They didn't really have a light to begin with, but whatever light was on, it was very dim, and it got dimmer and dimmer and just smashed it, and it was over with. But with, with Judah... They continued to sink, and there were times where they had revival. And then finally, and just not too far from here, God is going to bring a young man by the name of Josiah by name, and he's going to be a reformer king. He's going to basically kick everything out to the curb. He's going to clean out the temple. He's going to do all this stuff, and Israel is going to have a glory day. The only time it's been that good was probably when Solomon was reigning in his first years, when, I, when, when, the, when the kingdom was united and everything was going really well josiah restores and he does this great thing and it's so wonderful and it's almost like oh thank god it's finally happening but after he dies bam right into darkness they go and god takes him out of there but he gives him a light this is what it could be like but you would not you would not so in the second year we're coming closer to the end in the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. So Jotham's official reign was from 750 to 735 B.C. And he was a bright light, a bright light like I said, for Judah. Not like Josiah, of course. He was probably the brightest light. But the Bible doesn't have really any indictments against him other than the fact that he, didn't leave, uh, he left the high places for the people to worship on and burn incense on. But other than that, the Bible makes no other mention of anything bad. So he started off pretty good, and he ended fairly well. He, he wasn't one of these guys who started off and, and ended horribly. He was 25 years old, verse 33, when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However... And I love this. God, God is so honest. He's like, you know, he's a, he was a good guy. He did well, but he, he didn't go all the way. <laughs> he could have done better. Josiah is going to take care of that, but he's like, he did okay. But he didn't remove the high places. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on in the high places. But he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now, the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Well, yes, they are. And you might want to write in the margin of your Bible next to verse 36, second Chronicles 27, because you can read all about Jotham and uh, about his life there. more information there. So in those days, the Lord began to send reason, uh, king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. So now Judah because of their sin Israel is already like a cooked duck and, and they know that their time Is, is, is coming to a close But now um, Pekah the son of Remaliah, He's coming against Judah And so is the king of Syria Not Assyria but Syria Reason the, the king of Syria Now they're both coming against him And so The war drums start pounding Against, uh, against Judah and so Jotham, verse 38, rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. And Ahaz, as you know, you know Jotham was a fairly decent king. How is it that his son was such a horrible mess? He was one of the worst kings that ever occurred. Uh, Ahaz, one of the worst kings. And you would think that Ahaz might repent and things might turn around for Judah and Jerusalem, but he continued in the sins of his forefathers. And ultimately, this would ultimately lead them into captivity as well because we know that as Israel would go into captivity in 722, Judah and Jerusalem would be sieged by Nebuchadnezzar in 606 B.C. For 20 years, they'll besiege Jerusalem, trying to starve them out for 20 years. And in that time, three deportments of Jews would go to Babylon. Daniel would go to Babylon out of that and so would Ezekiel would go into and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego those are their Babylon names they went to and many others and then finally after that 20 year siege they said enough of this we're going to burn it and kill everybody and take everybody else captive and that's exactly what they did in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar finally came and the Babylonians and so Judah didn't learn from their sisters up north. And so it's important for us, you know, that there's a good lesson in here for us. Learn from those around you. You know, learn from the mistakes of others. Your own mistakes, certainly, but as you watch the lives of others and you see their mistakes, it'd be really silly for us not to take heed to that, right? We all have family and friends who make, make bad choices. Pay attention. Pay attention to all those around you and say and, and, and learn what they did and say, you know what, I don't want to do that. Talk to them about it. <laughs> what happened? How'd you get here? Well, so-and-so happened. You know it's good for us to learn. And Judah didn't learn. And God brought judgment upon them, but he wasn't going to destroy them forever. He allowed them, many of them died, certainly, but he led them captive, and they were there for 70 years until God brought them back into their land under the direction of Ezra and Nehemiah and they rebuilt the temple after it was destroyed 70 years later. But let's learn. you know. Don't be a, a stubborn mule when it comes to things around you. Learn from people. Learn from your friends. Learn from yourself. And try not to make the same mistakes over and over again. Because we do, don't we? It's really kind of sad. And so... Um, let's be learning and, and, and grow in that way. Let's stand together and we'll pray. And Lord, we, we thank you for these passages, although they're not easy to read, and there's certainly um, a lot of history here, Father, but uh, there's things that we can learn. And Lord, I pray that uh, just as we've already spoken, Lord, that we would learn And that we wouldn't be like Israel, Lord. And yet, all of us, we're we're all the same. We tend to do the same things over and over again. We tend to not learn the way we ought to. And Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters, Lord. um, Teach us in your way, Lord. Lead us in the way of everlasting. Search our hearts. See if there be any wicked way in us. And Lord, for me, I know you don't have to look very hard. But when you do it, Lord, help us to acknowledge it and move on and and turn from those things lord so have your way with us tonight lord i pray you bless my brothers and sisters and get them home safely and bless their day tomorrow father we ask it in jesus name amen